to America's Constitution. After several episodes that featured readings from Professor Moore's forthcoming book, The Words That Made Us, we're very excited to offer the first in a series of interviews with leading experts on matters relevant to our constitutional focus. Akhil and I think that you will agree that the lineup of leading lights that we have to share with you is quite remarkable. As you've heard from the horse's mouth on our last podcast, Bob Woodward will be joining us next week. And today, to lead off these interviews, it's fitting that in the aftermath of the recent impeachments and fresh off the publication of his new book, we have Professor Michael Gerhardt with us. And as a reminder, America's Constitution is sponsored today by Everscholar, and Akil and I will have a discussion later in the podcast to introduce you to Everscholar. But to start, I'd like to tell you about our distinguished guest, and you'll immediately see how lucky we are to have him with us. Michael is the Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina Law School. And a few words on his background. After graduating from Yale in the great class of 1978 and earning a master's at the London School of Economics and Political Science, he attended the University of Chicago Law School, where he graduated Order, Order of the Coif. After law school, he clerked for Chief District Judge Robert McRae of the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Tennessee, and then Judge, Judge Gilbert Merritt of the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Sixth Circuit. He then served as Deputy Media Director of Al Gore's first Senate campaign. He's rec nationally recognized as an expert in impeachment and judicial confirmation. Uh, he's testified more than 20 times before Congress, including most notably as the only uh, joint witness in the Clinton impeachment proceedings in the House, speaking behind closed doors to the entire House of Representatives about the history of impeachment in 1998. He also has served as special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee for an astounding eight of the nine sitting Supreme Court justices. And he was one of four constitutional scholars called by the House Judiciary Committee during uh, President Trump's impeachment proceedings. During the Clinton and first Trump impeachment, he served as an impeachment expert for CNN. In the second Trump impeachment trial, he was an expert on, for Fox and MSNBC and served as special counsel to the presiding officer, Senator Patrick Leahy. In 2015, he became the first legal scholar to be asked by the Library of Congress to serve as its principal advisor in revising the official United States Constitution annotated. In 2019, the Order of the Coif named him as its distinguished visitor for 2021. That's an award that's given to only one law professor each year for outstanding legal scholarship. And finally, he's been the scholar in residence at an institution that Akil and I are both very fond of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. So it's a great pleasure to, to welcome Professor Gerhardt today. Welcome. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate being here. And uh, so Professor Gerhardt's new book, Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader, um, is, is out. And I'm just curious, uh, Mike, um, who are your mentors? And, you know, did they play a role in, did mentoring play a role in your decision to take this approach with, uh, with Lincoln? Well, those are, those are good questions. Um, I, I would uh, count among my mentors um, first uh, and perhaps even foremost, uh, my mother. You may have 
read in the book that or seen, I dedicated the book to her. She died just before it got published. Um, and uh, so I owe a lot to her, my interest in reading, my um, perhaps my, my values as well. She was a Midwesterner and I was growing up in the deep South and I grew up with her values, I'm sure, among other things. Um, her love of learning was something I shared. And of course, I uh, luckily passed it on to my children as well. And she was also um, the keeper of the family's memory. So memory was extremely important to her. And a memory as a way to keep things alive uh, as well was important to her. And I think what motivated me in part to cons consider doing this book was uh, trying to figure out not just who Lincoln's mentors were, but how memory was important to him. And he understood that how you are remembered is as important, maybe more important than anything else you do. And so I uh, took to heart what my mother had taught me and uh, tried to use some of that and apply some of that to Lincoln's own life. As for other mentors, um, I had a few in college and beyond. I, I, um, I mentioned one of them, I think, in the acknowledgments of the book. I, I really appreciated getting to know Robin Winks when I was at Yale. Um, it turned out that he and I shared a deep uh, love for detective fiction, and we would have long discussions about how writing history is like writing the solution to a mystery, or perhaps not just figuring out what the, is the mystery and figuring out the um, credibility of different voices and uh, the reliability of certain sources. And so I was very much influenced by that as well. And I think that was also a, uh, uh, part of my mindset when I sort of tried to tackle Lincoln. Um, your cohort, Professor Amar, has got to be one of my mentors. <laughs> You're, reading, You're too uh, kind. Reading Akeel is learning about constitutional law. And I, I do think being a law professor uh, requires an openness to being educable, um, always being willing to acknowledge you may not know all the answers and where you might, else you might look to try and find them and who you can learn from. And there's nobody better to learn from than Professor Amar. Um, I also um, I appreciate a lot uh, working for uh, Judge Gilbert Merritt, uh, who I clerked for in the Federal Court of Appeals. He was very much into sort of Southern history and obviously into uh, good writing, but I, uh, we shared a lot of common interests as well. And of course, I've learned from so many other people, too numerous to mention right now, but I should uh, note that I had a couple of Professors in law school, Jeffrey Stone, Phil Curlin, who were mentors, and to this day, Stone and I sort of stay in contact, and I uh, consider him, of course, to be uh, not just a mentor, but also a friend. And um, even beyond them, um, Emma Bondron, a lawyer with whom I've worked, is a great lawyer in, in Atlanta, Georgia, courageous and a wonderful uh, lawyer to model one's self after. And then I, last but uh, far from least, I could keep going on forever, but I, I grew up, um, as I mentioned, in the Deep South, where, uh, Andy, because you and I are of the same generation, um, I, it was a time of great change in the Deep South. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement was just unfolding in front of me, and because I happened to be Jewish, I was um, 
I felt sort of the sting of that discrimination in a lot of different ways, including being barred from tennis tournaments and being barred from a lot of private places. And my hero growing up and ultimately my mentor growing up was Arthur Ashe, mm. uh, somebody who really had shown enormous dignity, enormous heart, enormous class, um, tremendous temperament in facing the worst kinds of discrimination anybody can face and still surmounting it. Um, and uh, he was an inspiration for me growing up, and I, I really uh, count him among my most treasured mentors. You know, I think that you, it's quite interesting that you, uh, some of the things you say about mentorship, because um, I think that this book, as well as, an, of course, an explanation of uh, exploration of Lincoln, is also one of the, of the concept of mentorship, because Lincoln, as you point out, um, he had these mentors that you identify, but some of them he didn't even meet, and, um, uh, and yet they were key mentors. And, you know, most of us think of Lincoln as a you know, self-made, self-taught man, but um, you point out that the reading was really just another example or another type of mentorship um, for him. Um, is this something that, that you know, became sort of, uh, was a new concept that Lincoln introduced to you? Well, I, I don't know if it was a new concept Lincoln had introduced to me, but I, I, I think in many respects it might have been an old concept that kind of led me back to thinking about Lincoln in this, in this way. Um, I grant you Lincoln was a political genius and um, one of the great writers um, and, and uh, speech writers in the history of this country. Um, his eloquence is uh, unmatched in many respects. Uh, but Lincoln, I think part of his genius was he re recognized what he didn't know uh, and recognized that he needed uh, to uh, learn. We, you can go all the way back to Socrates and earlier, perhaps, in understanding that the wise person is the person who recognizes what he or she may not know, um, the limits of one's knowledge. And so Lincoln, I think, realized that. And he wasn't um, reluctant to try and fill in the gap. To, uh, so he did that through a lot of reading. He also did it through studying people. He did that his entire life. Um, and that would lead him not just to people that he met, but people who read about or people um, he heard about. And so I think he was influenced and shaped by all these different um, interactions, some more than others, and I try to describe some of that in the book. Um, yeah. uh, uh, Mike, maybe you could just remind the, the readers of the five people whom you focus on as the, the most distinctive mentors, and then I'm going to ask you about a sixth. Uh, that didn't make the cut, but but what you think? Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I ended up focusing, as Akil just said, on five particular people um, that I found Lincoln uh, going back to time and again throughout his professional life. Uh, the first is Andrew Jackson. Um, Lincoln grew up among Jacksonians. Jackson's the person who appointed Lincoln to his first federal office, a postmaster. Jackson was a very important uh, figure throughout Lincoln's development as a young person and into his early and, and mid-adulthood. Um, and Lincoln, I think, understood what drove uh, Jackson and, and what drove Jacksonians, one part of which was their steadfast opposition to secession. Um, Lincoln shared that. So Lincoln developed not just a political dislike for Jackson, but he understood that there were certain 
attributes and virtues, so to speak, that Jackson may have had, his strong defense of the Union, strong opposition to secession, his steeliness in the face of danger, all these are things that Lincoln is going to learn from and emulate. Henry Clay was the, one of the great orators, maybe the great orator of Lincoln's time. Um, Lincoln grew up memorizing his speeches, reciting those speeches, but going further and learning from those speeches and adopting and adapting uh, the different imagery, the different arguments that Clay had formulated in opposition to secession and in defense of the Union. Um, the third is Zachary Taylor. Clay and Taylor are the two great uh, best-known Kentuckians in Lincoln's lifetime. Taylor was another formative president, president for Lincoln. Lincoln's exiting Congress at the same time Taylor's coming into office. But Lincoln uh, respected his ingenuity um, and his uh, willingness not to take guff from anybody. Um, so that became important for Lincoln to understand, but also to, to remain steadfast to a principle, but not to be as stubborn as Taylor was in not recognizing the virtues of compromise. Compromise was important to Clay, among others. Um, two lawyers, Orville Browning and John Todd Stewart, were contemporaries. Stewart was Lincoln's first law partner. He hired Lincoln uh, initially as a law partner, helped uh, uh, kind of put him into an environment where he learned the law and interacted with uh, other lawyers. But Stewart also introduced him to the leading Whigs in Congress, in the State House at, in Illinois at the time. And all these were for, uh, important um, in Lincoln's uh, development as a political leader and political thinker. Orville Browning was um, also a, a contemporary, as I mentioned, but also a competitor to some extent with Lincoln. And Browning, however, helped Lincoln because he sometimes would get to places Lincoln took a longer time to get to. So Browning was one of the people who helped found the Republican Party in Illinois. Uh, Browning helped introduce Lincoln to important moderates in the convention and later. Browning was a sounding board for Lincoln even after he became president. So all of those people, I think, helped Lincoln not just get to where he was, but to help him figure out what talents and skills he needed to have to become a great president. So, Mike, I w I'm actually going to modify. I said I was going to ask you about one, but maybe I'll ask you about a few others who, who okay. I think about. And so, one are P is a, from his readings, because Lincoln didn't interact in the flesh with all of these mentors. Some of them he's just, in effect, knowing on the page, um, right? Um, right. Uh, um, so did, did he did he ever meet Jackson? Jackson appointed him, but in the flesh. We, we don't think he ever met Jackson. And all I would sort of add a little bit to what you just said, Akil, is he also met a lot of people who had met these people. Mm. So that's a little different. Obviously, Shakespeare is somebody he read a lot, but he wouldn't meet anybody. Exactly. So I, I, knew, yeah. I, I was hoping that you would say just that because I could have thought about <laughs> thought Shakespeare might. as a teacher. But the other person... Uh, and, and Lincoln knows his Shakespeare backwards and forwards and loves yes. the theater. And, you know, when he reads the King James Bible and Aesop's fables and, yes. um, but, um, and, he, and he likes to tell stories the way Aesop does. And, um, and his father's a storyteller, even though his relationship, of course, with his father is very fraught. And Mike um, brings right. up uh, Aesop's uh, fables as an yeah. important book in Lincoln's yeah. childhood. Yeah, but the, childhood. The, the, the one that I really see, and again, he's not going to know people who know this guy, but, but I really see very much at work in Lincoln's thought. And Andy and I are huge Lincoln fans, and we talk about this all the time. And, and I want to know if you agree, or maybe you have a different point of view, because you've done a lot of studying this. I see Lincoln as loving Euclid. He loves logic. And, he, mm -hmm. and there's a relentlessly steel trap mind 
uh, quality to many of Lincoln's arguments. Um, Occam's razor, the, the logic of a position. And I see that as very much in a Euclidean tradition. And I know Lincoln loved um, reading Euclid and, and, and studying the proofs. Um, um, do you, sh- do you uh, think I'm hallucinating there, or do you have a similar <laughs> sense? No, I very much uh, have the exact same sense that you and Andy have. Uh, I, I do talk about that in the book to some extent. Uh, Lincoln, as you just pointed out, really loves uh, Euclid. And, and in a moment uh, when he seems to be at sea, a lot of people think he's at sea in the 18, uh, uh, late 1840s and early 1850s, he turns to Euclid. Um, and you, But one has to remember that Lincoln was also a surveyor. And so a surveyor has to understand his measurements, mm-hmm. um, which are obviously important to Euclid, among other things. And so I think Lincoln found a lot of affinity for Euclid in a, in a practical sense, but also in the sense that Euclid, as you just pointed out, was somebody, he's concrete, he's, uh, he, he, his theories are not, um, uh, I mean, his theories are really linked to um, the real world. And most importantly, I think for Lincoln, uh, things uh, cannot just be measured, but they're going to be answers to things. They're going to be um, concrete ways of thinking about things, as you put it, rigidly thinking about them. And many of the uh, contemporaries of Lincoln will later kind of reflect back on him saying, well, he was cold-hearted, he was dispassionate, and so on. Well, who does that sound like? That sounds like Euclid. Um, He was somebody who might see a problem, and and as Lincoln himself said, I'll look at it from every angle. Well, that's Euclid again. Um, and so you can see this recur throughout Lincoln's life, that he's, a, he's attracted to, to thinking like that, but he adapts that thinking to his own purposes, both in getting to be president or becoming president and later serving as president. Great. Now here's the other set of folks who are, if not contemporaries of Lincoln, well, at least their lives do overlap, and Lincoln would have... Um, been able to meet, know people and talk to people who, 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 who knew these folks in the flesh, and maybe even Lincoln met some of these folks in the flesh himself, and they didn't make your cut. And I just wanted you to tell us a little bit more about Lincoln's relationship to Daniel Webster, John Marshall, and Joseph Story. Yes, all, all you know, great Americans um, and important in our field of, of constitutional law, but of course important in American history. Um, well, let's start uh, with uh, John Marshall, I guess. Um, so Lincoln is born in 1809, and there's a tendency, I suspect, for many people not to think that Lincoln and Marshall in some respects overlap, or, um, but of course they do. Uh, John Marshall is the great Chief Justice throughout Lincoln's formative years, partic- uh, particularly when he's first thinking about becoming a lawyer and when he first becomes a lawyer. Uh, well, Lincoln was uh, familiar with Webster throughout, I think, his entire life. Uh, Webster's uh, oratory was famous throughout the land, and if Lincoln was studying Clay speeches, he certainly was studying Webster's speeches as well. Uh, uh, Clay was important as a lawyer. Webster was one of the great Supreme Court advocates of, of the 19th century, maybe even the greatest. Um, and many of the foundational cases that John Marshall decided 
uh, were cases in which Marshall was siding with Daniel Webster. Uh, and together, Webster and Marshall were formulating a vision of the United States, I think, that Lincoln agreed with 100%. Um, Lincoln got to know Marshall, uh, excuse me, Lincoln got to know Webster when Lincoln was in the House. He and Webster used to get together every Sunday for breakfast. I think they liked each other. They enjoyed telling stories. Uh, I think one thing that was different with Webster, though, from some of the others, is Webster's politics were not always uh, aligned with Lincoln, or Lincoln's politics are not always aligned with Webster's. I think Lincoln would have found Webster a little more mercurial than perhaps uh, he liked or would have preferred. So I think that's one reason why Webster ends up not being as impactful uh, as I think Clay was. And then that leaves us, of course, the great Justice uh, Joseph Story, who, along with um, Marshall, is one of the great justices of the uh, pre-Civil War era in American history. And uh, in many respects, although he's much more than this, an acolyte of Marshall's and, of course, the author of commentaries on the, on the Constitution, Lincoln was familiar with all that. And, and I think those in, uh, stories work informed Lincoln's judgment about uh, the Constitution, which is going to become extremely important later when he becomes president. So, Mike, you and I are, you know, and Andy are all deep into sort of Lincoln trivia. I'm going to ask you a, a question completely out of left field, um, and, and then I'm going to read you a couple of pages from a, a, a sort of an, a, a book that that will explain, you know, depending on your answer, why I'm, I'm uh, asking this. Um, I can't find any reference to it, but I know I read somewhere that um, it's not true, but there was this speculation that um, Marshall may have been actually um, a relative of Lincoln because Lincoln's mother, Nancy Hanks, was illegitimate. And so, like, who was the, the father? Um, uh, and um, I'd actually heard, and I just can't remember where it was, who it was who told me, that actually you know, John Marshall, who spent time in Kentucky, was, you know, rumored... Um, to, to have been maybe the illegitimate uh, grandfather of Abraham Lincoln. You never heard anything like that, did you? Um, it, it brings to mind Gore Vidal's Lincoln um, <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, Gore Vidal's Burr. Um, but, um, uh, but I didn't run across it in any of the uh, work I'd done on this book, So he, I regret to say. Here's... Um, uh, Two pages. I'm just going to read because they're they're really fun. This is from um, Beveridge's uh, Albert Beveridge's four volume biography of John Marshall. Right. Um, and so I just it's just maybe maybe it was just this that someone had read and then commented. So here's how he begins. He says, you know, if we're trying to get a picture of Marshall, he says, we must imagine a person very much like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Uh, indeed, the resemblance of Marshall to Lincoln is striking. Between no two men in American history is there such a likeness. Physically, intellectually, and in characteristics, Martian, Marshall and Lincoln were the same type. Both were very tall men, slender, loose-jointed, and awkward, but powerful and athletic, both fond of sport. So alike were they, so identical in their negligence of dress, their total unconsciousness of it or indifference to it, conviction that the two men walking side by side might well have been taken for brothers. 
Both Marshall and Lincoln loved companionship with the same heartiness. Both had the same social qualities. They enjoyed fun, jokes, laughter in equal measure, had the same keen appreciation of wit and humor. Their mental qualities were the same. Each man had a gift of going directly to the heart of any subject, while the same lucidity of statement marked each of them. Their style, the simplicity of their language, the peculiar clearness of their logic were almost identical. Notwithstanding their straightforwardness and amplitude of mind, both had a curious subtlety. Some of Marshall's opinions in Lincoln's state papers might have been written by the same man. Um, each had a genius for managing men, and Marshall showed the precise traits in dealing with the members of the Supreme Court that Lincoln displayed in his cabinet. Both were born in the South. It goes on and on, actually. So, so the, the two pages of um, you know uh, uh, all these parallels between Marshall, who has Kentucky connections, of course, right. um, and and Lincoln. Um, what, if anything, do we know about Nancy Hanks and the circumstances of of, of her? Um, a conception and and um, uh, and family background. Well, we know some things, of course. Um, I, but the, to cut to the chase, we don't know enough to fill in uh, any of the questions one might have about any relationship with Marshall. Um, if if um, we assume there was some re- relationship with Marshall um, somewhere in Lincoln's background. It's somewhat telling, at least to me, that Lincoln doesn't talk about Marshall all that much. Interesting. Um, so uh, Lincoln is, in, in fact, this may be a, a variation on sort of the uh, Sherlock Holmes story, Silver Blaze, you know, the dog that didn't bark in the night. Um, so uh, but with Lincoln, he was yearning, even from an early age, to be somebody great. He was, it yes. was just a very strong uh, part of him. But you'd think if he had any knowledge whatsoever that he was linked to one of the great Americans of his lifetime, he might have talked about it. It might show up somewhere mm-hmm. at some point, especially when people are doing biographies of Lincoln in his lifetime. And it doesn't, I just don't think the footprint's there. Um so uh, let me ask one other question about sure. that, because I think, I think you're right, and that's why I just was wondering if you had ever even heard of this. That's why it was out of left field. Um, okay. Here's the dog also in your book in a way that doesn't bark. Andy and I talk a lot about being dads, and you and I have talked about being dads, yes. you know, actually um, a lot. Um, yep. And Link, I mentioned this just quickly, Lincoln's relationship to his father is kind of complicated. His father isn't, on your view, or Lincoln's own um, a a mentor. Um, I have read Lincoln basically say um, that the smarts I got were actually from my illegitimate grandfather. I don't know who that was, but he's like saying it wasn't from the Thomas Lincoln side. It was from the Nancy Hanks side, which has some, a little, some mystery in it or, or something. So, so um, if you just say a little bit about Lincoln and his father, that also might be interesting because for a lot of people, you know, you mentioned your parents as mentors, your mom and in the acknowledgements, your mom and your dad. So, so, um, that and and some historians have said, oh well, Lincoln gets his storytelling um, right. skills from his father. Lincoln's father, you know, um, teaches him how to how to defend himself physically. He's a wrestler. You know, you can't let people right. push you around. Um, so um, maybe a little bit on Lincoln's father before we um, um, switch gears. Sure. 
Um, well, you, you've touched, of course, on a lot of the significant aspects of their relationship. Perhaps the most significant is that uh, they didn't have a good relationship. Uh, by all accounts, um, the, uh, Lincoln was not enamored of his father, and Lincoln wanted to get out from under uh, his father's quickly and, and finally as he could. Um, Lincoln's father was um, not quite the same physical build, um, was uh, interesting enough gruff with Lincoln, but was, as you just said, was thought to be a really good storyteller. Um, Dennis Hanks, who was related to Nancy Hanks, um, suggests that, uh, uh, that Thomas may well be a better storyteller than Abraham, um, which may or may not be true, um, but, there, but, but the storytelling that Thomas apparently engaged in was part of his persona. And obviously Abraham would have been around listening to that, learning from that, and adapting it. Um, and, but Lincoln, excuse me, Thomas was a man who worked with his hands. Um, and he wanted Abraham to do the same thing. And it seems to be about the last thing Abraham Lincoln wanted to do. He hated laboring in the fields. He much preferred reading books. Um, and it's also reported that Thomas would sometimes beat Lincoln when he was reading or not working like he should, or Thomas would get reports from people to whom he had hired out Lincoln to do some work for them, but they said, oh, he's a bit lazy. Uh, so Thomas came down hard on him. And Lincoln, interesting enough, when he left home, spoke of his leaving home, and this is his word, as an emancipation. I can't think that's accidental. And I think it reflects Lincoln's thinking that in some respects he really was like a slave under his father and he wanted to break out from under it. Um, they didn't really talk after Lincoln left home. In fact, I don't think they ever saw each other again. Lincoln was too busy to go to his father's funeral. Um, but when he went back to Illinois to see his stepmother before he headed to Washington, one of the last places Lincoln goes is to his father's grave. Um, he goes and stands there alone. We don't know exactly what's said. Lincoln doesn't, is not somebody who shares a lot of his thoughts with others. Um, but we can speculate that that may have been a moment when Lincoln thought, um, perhaps, uh, you never thought I could be anything good, and yet I've done something you never dreamed of. I'm going to be the president of the United States. And so I think Lincoln relished and was very proud of the fact that he seemed to come from nowhere, um, and he ended up, of course, being president. There's, uh, I've read uh, along, along these lines that um, Lincoln's, uh, some of Lincoln's attitude towards slavery, which you uh, referred to uh, a moment ago, uh, can, be, can be traced to this notion that he, he felt that his labor was you know, not paid for and that that mm -hmm. was one of the worst uh, things that you could do, that he, he was you know, driven so hard, not just that he was beaten or mistreated, but the lack of remuneration for his work uh, was very important to him. Uh, at, at the hands of his father. The other thing is that in terms of uh, the reading that Akil did that talked about how, how handsome John Marshall was, um, you have in your, in your <laughs> book on page 12 a quote from uh, Lincoln's stepmother that, uh, that, she, that she thought he was, uh, quote, the ugliest chap that ever obstructed her view. <laughs> so perhaps... Not, not a, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, not a great thing to have your stepmother say about you, but... But they ended up loving each other very dearly. Um, 
and I might just add one other thought, and I don't want to take anything uh, away from Beveridge. You know, he's one of the great. Um, he's of many things, and one of them is a historian. Um, but I think there's this tremendous impulse um, to solve the mystery of Abraham Lincoln by deifying him somewhat or linking him to some greater forces, like I, uh, saying, aha, he's got to be related to Marshall. Uh, look what they have in common and so on and so forth. I'm not entirely convinced they did dress alike. I'm not entirely convinced they looked alike at all. Um, they, they do have some similarities in the writing that they did, but Marshall is, uh, is, is on a much faster track than Lincoln. Um, partly because he's in the Revolutionary War and he obviously connects with Washington there. And then he's on a very fast track. Lincoln's track is anything but fast. Um, and so I think it's, I just would uh, note uh, that Lincoln isn't quite, um, um, uh, whatever trajectory he got as a result of being related to Marshall, if he is at all, didn't help him all that much get a fast start. So, so could I just segue just a bit? I, I know we want to talk about impeachment, um, and that connects to presidents more generally. You're, you're, you're talking about, you know, different tracks. Um, you also wrote a book about um, other presidents, forgotten presidents. So maybe actually if you did have thoughts, uh, because Andy and I have been talking a lot about tracks to the presidency. That's been actually the subject of, of several of our previous podcasts. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts about um, slow tracks, fast tracks, inside <laughs> tracks, um, tracks to the presidency? That's a great question. Um, well, there, I, mean, I guess one thing we're going to learn is there isn't necessarily one track uh, to becoming president. Um, there, there is, a, uh, as you point out, there are going to be some fast tracks, that is to say people who are so well-connected and so experienced um, that they, um, they get their relatively uh, quickly, um, although they're not youngish, but if you look at, you know, Madison, Monroe, uh, uh, they're, they're extremely well connected on their path to the presidency. Um, you look at others like Washington, Adams, Jefferson, they're connected with that original group that founds the country. Um, and so that, in a sense, gives them some um, credibility in a very important way when we're thinking about the presidency. Uh, there are others that get there by accident. You know, John Tyler, um, uh, in fact, is called his accidency when he becomes the first vice president who may be able to be elevated to the presidency because the incumbent William Henry Harrison died. Um, Millard Fillmore later uh, kind of accidentally gets into the presidency in a similar way. He's the vice president to Zachary Taylor um, and then there are others, I think, like John Quincy Adams, who have a resume, James Buchanan has a resume. Their resumes are just unbelievable. They were both disastrous presidents, but their, re their, res their experiences, their political experiences were, frankly, I think, second to none. Um, and then you have somebody like Lincoln. Uh, his only experience at the federal level is two years in the House. Uh, otherwise, he serves in this Illinois state government, as Illinois state legislature, uh, and and somehow he's nevertheless qualified to run for the presidency, and he wins the presidency. Um, and it leads me to think that you don't necessarily have to have all that political experience 
to have the vision that I think is important for a president as something that not just motivates them, but becomes the foundation uh, and objective for the presidency. We've been talking about, in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about uh, Jackson. And, uh, you know, I know with, you know, that you, that you choose Jackson and Clay, um, who, of course, were very different. Um, how, do you, how do you reconcile uh, Lincoln seeing both of those as, as key mentors, given how, how different they were? I think the essential thing for me is that Lincoln w- did not discriminate in trying to learn from other people. He was um, tremendously adept at reading people and learning things from people, even if they weren't people he liked or agreed with. He could see things. Um, that he might think, okay, here's something I shouldn't do. Here's something that doesn't work very well. Uh, uh, you know, Polk, for example, lying to Congress. That's how Lincoln saw it. He, think, he thinks, okay, I'm not going to quite do it that way. But, uh, hey, Jackson stands up against secession. I can agree with that. I can learn from that. Um, and he's picking and choosing. He's selecting um, the lessons that he can learn from and emulate from others. But at the same time, he can be selective in and choosing not to do certain things, not to follow certain paths. Personally, I think that's Lincoln's genius is that he's able to take people that are really different, Jackson and Clay, politically and otherwise, and yet somehow find something in each of them that resonates within himself, Lincoln, that he can then use to his own advantage. Uh, and of course there are aspects of each of those people that Jackson's uh, very temperamental, uh, Clay may be a little bit too uh, eager to please sometimes. Um, and so there's certain aspects of both of them that Lincoln will try not to uh, follow in his own life. Um, Jackson had a uh, temperamental relationship with the judiciary at, some, at, at one point, and, and Lincoln uh, did as well. Um, yes. Do you see any, uh, and of course one might say it went beyond temperamental, do you see any uh, similarities there? Well, there are. Um, I mean, there, there are similarities in a few different respects. I mean, one is, yes, that there's this, a, a kind of apocryphal story about Jackson not wanting to um, comply with a Supreme Court decision he didn't like. Obviously, later when he vetoes the National Bank, he, um, he exhibits the independence of the presidency, not having to follow a Supreme Court decision he doesn't think is binding or, for that matter, correct. Um, Lincoln... We'll learn from that. Um, and so Lincoln looks at Dred Scott in a very similar way. Uh, that's a decision he'll explain why he doesn't think it's um, a good precedent and, for, in fact, a weak precedent, and he's going to not follow it. Um, at the same time, um, Jackson does some other things that Lincoln supports, and Lincoln, in fact, cites Jackson. Um, when ja- in the 18- War of 1812, Jackson, on his own, unilaterally suspends habeas corpus. Jackson gets in lots of trouble for it. But when Lincoln has to do the same thing early in his presidency, he cites Jackson as his precedent. So Lincoln is learning from all these things, and he's, he's very utilitarian, very pragmatic, uh, if those two things can somehow coexist, um, in the way in which he's um, learning from predecessors and adapting what they did to help him do what he's going to do. 
I think his pragmatism extends to the very relationship with these mentors. Because after yes. all, Taylor and Clay were rival. He really had to choose at, at one point. And he yes. makes a pragmatic choice on, uh, between them. He, he's pragmatic, uh, one might even say to a fault, but it, you know, I guess the results speak for themselves. Uh, later when he's president, uh, as you both well know, um, he's going to be very pragmatic. And again, uh, contemporaries might describe this as being cold, really cold. Um, when he just dismisses Montgomery Blair from the cabinet, Blair had been a, a great devote, really devoted to Lincoln and supported him, but he had served his purpose. And Lincoln writes a letter, leaves it on his desk and says, okay, you've you know, you once said you'd leave when you had to. If it would help me, it's going to help me. So um, you're, you're hereby, you know, terminated immediately. Um, and yet Blair doesn't hold that much of a grudge against Lincoln, um, perhaps because he and his family understood that they can only remain politically relevant if they stay connected to Lincoln. But this pragmatism is going to get Lincoln to where he wants to go, and it will keep him there. We're going to transition at a certain point uh, to another general um, uh, a topic as to which you're the, the world's expert. So we've been talking about Lincoln. We're going to transition, I hope, a bit to impeachment uh, soon enough. But, but since you mentioned Seward, um, uh, one observation I've heard uh, that's been made about Lincoln is he actually didn't have that many friends. Yep. Um, and... And, and Seward, of course, begins as, so maybe there's Joshua Speed. Um, right. um, I'm not sure even Herndon is really an intimate. Um, yeah. uh, but maybe, maybe Joshua Speed. Um, not that many others, I think, uh, probably not Dennis Hanks or, you know, right. uh, cousins from childhood or things like that. Um, siblings, no. Um, so uh, I've heard it said that that Seward, who begins, of course, as a rival, he wants to be president, so does Lincoln, so does Salmon P. Chase in, in 1860, and it's uh, uh, Lincoln who uh, emerges victorious. And, and even at the beginning, Seward thinks he's going to be controlling Lincoln, um, the power behind the throne. Um, but uh, the, I've heard that that relationship does mature into a real friendship, and it's one of the few that Lincoln had. Your th thoughts on that? Is, is that your take, or do you have a different view of the matter? I think I'm probably, um, I, I think I share that take. Uh, you may know the essay written by David Herbert Donald, great Lincoln historian, who writes about, um, it's a book called Lincoln's Men, and Donald writes in there about how Lincoln didn't have any close friends, friends in the sense that people most likely think of just people with whom he'd have a warm attachment um, uh, throughout time. Uh, they're not, as you point out, that just doesn't happen with Lincoln um, at all. Um, and those people who would have counted themselves as friends, certainly by the time Lincoln is president and maybe later, they don't really think of themselves as having uh, ever had their friendship reciprocated. Um, and and, uh, and some of that may just be sour grapes, you know, people who wanted something from the president didn't get it. But there also may be a kernel of truth in there uh, that Lincoln didn't warm up to people uh, in a, uh, let's say, a natural way um, at all. But uh, Lincoln was therefore more standoffish, more aloof. Humor, in a sense, may become a defense or 
uh, a way in which to kind of create a kind of superficial relationship. And many people will walk, come away from a meeting with Lincoln thinking he had agreed with them, um, when in fact uh, he might end up doing something entirely different. Uh, so there's this pragmatist that seems to be much more powerful within Lincoln than any kind of uh, friendly aspect that he may have had. Um, and th that's, uh, and unfortunately he, he, he dies prematurely, so we have no idea what he might have done later in life and how that may have uh, changed our understanding of what friendship meant to him. And one final just thought on that before we make that transition. I know Andy has lots of things he wants to ask you about impeachment. Okay. Um, uh, and, and you really are the world's expert. You've, uh, you've been maybe involved in more impeachments possibly than any other academic in history. Um, but, mm, but, before we, but before we get to that, um, uh, the, the final um, uh, um, dog that didn't bark or, or thing that I think maybe we, we need to at least mention um, is um, Mary. Um, and yes. she is a political operative and, and she does teach him certain things because she um, speaks French and, and knows certain uh, things about uh, gentility and polite society that, that he's unfamiliar with, at least by, by uh, background and training. So um, is she in any way um, a mentor to him uh, politically, socially, Otherwise, um, is she a friend to him, and in what way? Um, uh, uh, this is, of course, many, many books have been written on this complicated relationship and this complex and interesting woman, but um, your thoughts? Well, I, I think I probably could just say yes. <laughs> I, I think it is. <laughs> it, it is a complicated relationship, um, and that may be partly because Lincoln had complicated relationships with women. Uh, he was not somebody... We, we discern um, had, had an, an easy way in interacting with women. Some other leaders uh, might have developed uh, a different personas and different manners, but for Lincoln, I think, was uh, somebody who uh, probably had the relationship with Mary you just mentioned. It was complicated. He would have learned some things from her, maybe begrudgingly, um, uh, she certainly irritated him, uh, apparently to no end, um, to the point where he would leave home uh, early in the morning and stay out as long as he could. Um, I'm also reminded when he first gets to Washington as a member of the House, he comes with his family, but within a very short period of time, he's so irritated by their presence, he sends them home. And then by the end of his term, he kind of writes a letter saying, well, I kind of wish you you know, been here, you know, uh, uh, but, you know, when push came to shove, he didn't really want her around. I think she would have been, she would have been and was miffed by the fact when he does become president, he's not listening to her more often. Um, and that's partly because that's who Lincoln was. Lincoln would, he, in a sense, get told things by lots and lots of people. Um, but the question becomes, you know, what really got in, what really influenced him, I think Mary was just always coming up short, unfortunately, for Mary. She never got as much as she wanted from him. Um, and that did produce some frustration between the two of them. Fascinating stuff. And the book is Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader. 
And uh, it's newly out, and I recommend it. As we prepare to switch gears here, let's just take a minute to tell our audience a little bit about Everscholar. You know, when I think about the audience, I think some of them must be jealous about the fact that, uh, obviously, uh, you and I talk freely, you know, casually about the issues of the day and these uh, fascinating constitutional issues that come up and so forth. Um, and yes, I'm a stand-in for the audience, but in fact, uh, this came about, uh, our friendship uh, originated through study that we did together, or study where that you, actually, you were the, the teacher, the professor. Um, and that came from a, um, a program that now has given birth to Everscholar, that's now sponsoring our podcast. So, you know, well, what is Everscholar? You know, it's a, it's a, uh, an organization that seeks to provide programs for people like me and like our audience to be able to uh, study like they were in college, um, to go to great settings, university settings um, or other academically oriented settings, and to study in great intensity and great depth with the finest professors, and to do it um, in small groups. We limit uh, in Ever Scholar classes to 21 students. We call them scholars. Um, and usually they're team taught. In fact, they're always team taught. Um, but all the members of the team are all stars. And uh, so we originally met, as I said, in a program called uh, uh, New Birth of Freedom, uh, How the Civil War Era Made a New America. And uh, what are your recollections of that, Akhil? Um, that uh, the scholars around the room were stunning. I love uh, teaching undergrads. I love teaching law students. I can't believe I get paid to do this. And I do love my students, but they don't quite have the life experiences that uh, these lifelong learners and ever scholar uh, have. Um, uh, uh, they say youth is wasted on the young. Um, so the Ever Scholar participants, the, the, the students, or actually it wasn't the, yet the Ever Scholar program, but the, the lifelong learners in that other program um, were really hungry. They, they remember what undergraduate education was at their best. They, they've been off in the world, and, and, they, um, they, and they miss that. And, uh, and they've done the reading much more carefully than most of my undergraduate students or law students did. They, they had lots to contribute. And it was more, of course, a conversation with peers, um, people my own age group, plus or minus. Uh, and so that was my general impression, uh, just what an extraordinarily fun, intense conversation was, how I was learning things and, and getting an experience different from what I get um, around the, a seminar room with, with, with younger students. That was my general impression. I'm going to embarrass you, Andy, but my other specific impression is, my God, who is this guy, Andy Lipka? <laughs> you know, he always has, he seems like, you know, something exceptionally smart to say, and, and he waits sometimes um, until there's a lull in the conversation because what a professor dreads is, you know, having to carry the seminar at every point and it's always great to have at least one student who, who will help move things along if the, if the conversation starts to, to flag. And Andy, uh, my other imp uh, memory is that you always did that. And, and, you, and you, you're still doing that now with our podcast. 
Well, thank you for that, uh, that undeserved praise. But uh, let me give you an example of what a typical day uh, in an Everest Scholar would be, program would be like. First of all, it's, they tend to be residential, so that the various scholars are, are staying together in some place. Um, and so, for example, we have a program coming up uh, in June with Professor Marr. This program is sold out, but um, the, it's taking place at Columbia University. And the, uh, the scholars will, will stay in residence at the Yale Club of New York. They'll have breakfast together, go to, to Columbia um, in a regular classroom, but again, a small seminar, no more than 21 students. And Professor Marr will lead us a, uh, a seminar on readings that we will have all done ahead of time. Uh, then coffee break, and then there'll be another seminar. This time will we'll be taught by Professor Stephen Smith, who's the other lead professor, great professor of political philosophy um, at Yale University. Then there'll be lunch, at which, uh, and at lunch the, the professors join us. Um, then there'll be an afternoon session with a guest professor. Um, in this case, it might be Sandy Levinson from the University of Texas uh, Law School has agreed to, to teach in this. Um, and we will have read his book uh, in preparation for that. And then we might go off to, together to a, some kind of special event. For example, we might go, since this is in New York, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to see the American Wing and have a tour from an art historian and so forth. And just to give you an idea of the type of people that you you know be with in this program, uh, in this one, I happen to know uh, one of the people that's registered for the program is the uh, the descendant of uh, Elijah Boardman, whose portrait hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he recently sent me an article about uh, Shea's Rebellion and how, uh, how his, uh, his ancestor had corresponded with, uh, with Shea uh, regarding this and so forth. And we have a dinner at a fine restaurant, again with the professors, and then you know, off to uh, back to the Yale Club, but perhaps you know, uh, discussions along the way about the, about what's been going on or some other subject. And then you do this over and over again, you know, for uh, a week or, or shorter or longer, depending on the program. And it's quite the immersion, wouldn't you say? Yes, that's the right word. And when we come out of it, we're really a community. And in fact, the community has ongoing discussions online and so forth. Um, and this community has been in formation now for since 2011, um, and uh, it's really not just, you know, the the students or the scholars. It's also the faculty as an intense part of uh, part of the community, and um, it's something that gives meaning to your life throughout the year because you have the the reading preparation, which I consider reading with a purpose uh, at my home is something you know quite wonderful and the ongoing relationships with people that you, you know, didn't know uh, before and so forth. And I think, you know, uh, since Everscholar is uh, dedicated to sponsoring this podcast, we'll talk about it some more um, over time. Yeah, so there's the anticipation of it, and even sometimes the, the scholars talking amongst themselves before the uh, immersion experience and the immersion experience, and then conversations afterwards. So uh, this community idea is really special. In certain ways, it's an adaptation of some of the best programs at Yale College, um, a program called Directed Studies, a, a program called Grand Strategies, which was partly the brainchild of uh, Charlie Johnson, a very generous 
uh, benefactor of, of Yale. I tell and Nicholas Brady, former Secretary of the Treasury, it's actually it was called the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategies. Um, and with amazing professors, uh, Charlie Hill and, and, and others. So, so it's a, it, it, it kind of grows out of, I would say, not uh, some of the best things that Yale College has done, um, which create a specially intense, intellectually immersive, challenging um, um, opportunities uh, above and beyond just the, the baseline great Yale College education that you and I were the beneficiaries of and so much believe in. So I encourage you to go to everscholar.org and learn more about it. And the most exciting thing in the near future is the incredible program in Greece that's going to be held August 1st to 12th this year. And there are a few spots remaining in that, so I encourage you to check that out. And uh, as they say, uh, Greece is the word. <laughs> and we'll be talking more about it in future episodes. Thank you. So we're going to switch, uh, switch gears, as, as Akil has said, because after all, we do have the leading expert on impeachment <laughs> on, the, on the call with us. Um, so obviously we've been through these, these two impeachments now of Donald Trump. Um, where do we stand coming out of it compared to going into it um, from, a, let's say, a political point of view or a legal point of view um, for you know, future situations where one uh, might be concerned that the president might be impeached, consider the, the possibility of it, and, and so forth? And I'd add to that, Mike, before you answer, um, since you were involved in this one as well, the Clinton impeachment, where if memory serves, you were the only academic really... Uh, asked to testify by both the Republicans and the Democrats. So you've actually lived through three modern impeachments. Well, I appreciate the questions, and I certainly appreciate the kind words. Um, there's no pressure here, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I, my initial reaction is that I, I don't think we're necessarily out of the political part of all this. Um, we're still... Um, we may be phasing out of the last impeachment, but because it's so recent, um, it's clear that people in Congress still feel it, feel the sting of it, uh, feel the irritation of it, maybe feel some justification for it. And, uh, and so I think we're still learning about the politics of it, uh, number one. Number two, I do think that... Uh, as a political and constitutional thing, impeachment is not something Congress likes to do. So all those people thinking, oh, well, this is going to give Congress a taste for it. We're now going to use it to go after X or Y, and it's just become a vicious cycle. In my experience, uh, in my interaction with members of Congress, I don't know anyone who develops a taste for impeachment, uh, especially when it comes to presidents. It's a very difficult thing. It's not just distracting, it's deflecting. Um, it's one of the hardest votes people have to cast. It literally sets aside everything else on the agenda of Congress. And, and so members of Congress, I don't think, lightly go into it, uh, and they certainly come out of it um, rethinking all that happened. Uh, if, we, if we go back to the Clinton situation, um, after Bill Clinton was acquitted, um, there was a widespread consensus in Congress at that time, and this is more than 20 years ago, that 
impeachment was not very effective and nobody was going to, and nobody had developed a taste in it and was going to use it anytime soon. Well, then we fast forward and we get to the Trump administration. And I think with Trump, um, last thing I'll say politically on that and then move to legal stuff. Uh, I think with Trump, he was a different kind of president. Um, and he came into office in a different way. He governed differently. Um, and that had to be square with the different constitutional processes that exist to hold presidents accountable for their misconduct. And as sometimes happens with impeachment, presidents make mistakes. They know people are gunning for them, and they will still make mistakes. Bill Clinton did that. Um, now, I don't think Andrew Johnson thought he was making a mistake when he fired Edwin Stanton, but Andrew Johnson understood that if he fired Stanton, Congress was going to come after him. There's no doubt that that was going to happen. Um, Bill Clinton knew from the day he entered the presidency, people were gunning for him. They want, Bill Barr kept introducing impeachment resolutions against him. So when Bill Clinton finally made one faux pas too many, yes, impeachment got revved up. And so when Donald Trump uh, had that phone call, the one he called perfect, and then there was a whistleblower reporting it, that was a bridge too far for Donald Trump. That was one too many uh, situations where he had to expect the fact that impeachment was going to get revved up and possibly used against him. Um, now, with regard to what we've learned from all that and with the ramifications of all of it, uh, there are various lessons here, and I'll just mention a couple of them. One is I think we've learned that the threshold for conviction and removal are, is so high that as a practical matter, I'm not sure it can work against the president. It might be possible, at least at one time in the past, a, a resignation could be forced. That's Richard Nixon. But one lesson to draw from Richard Nixon is, well, maybe one doesn't have to resign. That's Bill Clinton. And that's Donald Trump. Neither of them was ever going to resign. So uh, the question was whether or not they could wait out the process and keep their party together. And they did. They waited out the process. They kept their coalitions together. And, and conviction was never remotely possible for either of them. Uh, and that was true for both of Trump's impeachments. So that threshold uh, the Constitution sets up is so high that it may be impractical to think that impeachment can achieve very much when it comes to presidential misconduct. The misconduct of other officials may be a different matter. Um, at the same time, I think we also learned in the second impeachment trial of um, Donald Trump that even if there's an acquittal, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean the president emerges unscathed. You get the most votes uh, uh, for conviction in the history of impeachment with President Trump's second trial. You get seven Republicans crossing the aisle to vote to convict. That's the most ever to cross the aisle to convict. Uh, these are things that certainly tarnish uh, Trump's legacy, are part of the historical record that cannot be erased. So if we think of the larger picture of a presidential accountability, we can see that maybe even with acquittal, um, a president sometimes does get tarnished. When you, and you can maybe even tell our uh, audience this story, because you, you keep telling me that I, 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 I pushed you into all of this, because you used to you know, be my, my, my beloved fence-sitting friend, and I said, like, take a stand. And you, I didn't on these impeachments. You did. 
um, uh, you took a stand, and 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 I'm proud of you for for taking a stand. When you took a stand twice, uh, pushing um, impeachment, were you pretty much already aware that they weren't going to culminate in convictions? Well, let me take that in two parts. I mean, the first is, and I mentioned earlier, one of my mentors is Professor Amar, and I think that, you know, I, I, Akil, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to say is a, is a longtime friend of mine, and I have uh, just uh, unlimited respect for him. But I also try to listen to Akil, you know, and, and one of the things that Akil would say to me, I think every time we ran into each other in New Haven, was, you know, I, you, know you should try and take a stand, you know, do it. I think when we last saw each other, even in, at Yale Law School, um, you said to me in the hallway with Phil Bobbitt there, you, 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 gotta, you gotta take a stand, try and take a stand. Yeah. Um, because I was Mr. Reasonable, that's your words. You know, I was, <laughs> I was always, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, my temperament is to find common ground. Um, and that can work in a lot of different ways, but impeachment is a very difficult area in which sometimes to find common ground. Um, and I thought with Bill Clinton, at least for me, that was a harder case um, than what Trump presented. With Bill Clinton, um, yes, he, he broke a law, but then there's the question of, okay, how serious really was that? And what did it really have to do with the presidency and ultimately how bad an injury did that cause the republic? Those could be difficult questions. I, I thought with Trump, uh, there were no difficult questions. Um, I, I think when Trump um, uh, systematically undermined American foreign policy in Ukraine and then added to that um, requesting a personal favor from the president of a foreign country to help him with a lie that was going to help his reelection, I thought that was going way too far. I thought that was about as bad an abuse of power a president could commit because only the president gets to really deal in foreign affairs. Members of Congress can't go out and negotiate with foreign leaders, but presidents can. And if presidents do that in a way that um, breaches the trust that we have, that they'll do it without uh, their own personal interests in mind, but with our interests in mind, if presidents ignore our interests and just care about their own interests, I think that's a breach of uh, trust. I think that's an abuse of power. And I think that was the basis for the first impeachment. So I, I got off the fence. I thought, okay, this is a situation where somebody's not driving 26 miles an hour in a school zone. They're driving 55. We don't have any doubt that this is, in my opinion, crossing the line and doing so egregiously. Um, and yes, we knew the numbers in the Senate, but as far as the question of whether or not this could be considered an impeachable offense, I thought that was not a hard question. Then we get into the second situation where we all think we're out of the woods, so to speak, and uh, the clock's winding down in President Trump's time in office. January 6th happens. Um, the culmination of a persistent effort on President Trump's part to discount and undermine the election of 2020. And um, whether or not President Trump was complicit with the violence seems to have been a pretty easy call to make. And would a president who was complicit with violence committed against Congress, literally committed against Congress, would that be an impeachable offense? Again, for me, not a close case. I think that's an impeachable offense. And we didn't think there would be the votes in the Senate. Um, but I, I thought at some point 
uh, I would have to agree with Professor Amar. I couldn't just always be um, so reasonable that I could see the arguments on both sides. Sometimes actually one side may well have a better argument, uh, at least for me, have a more compelling argument. And that was the case in these last two impeachments. And just, Mike, when you say we, maybe you can just remind our audience of the particular role that you played, because you're not merely, oh. you know, an academic offering opinions. You, you, were, you were more a player in the process, and, and, and uh, I'm sure our audience would like to hear a little bit about that. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I, as a preface, I might just say that I, I began our conversation by talking about one of my heroes, um, Arthur Ashe, and um, the, my situation in growing up in the deep south as a as a Jew who was experiencing some of that discrimination, and coming to realize that one of the most important functions any of us has is to speak truth to power. Uh, in the civil rights era, that was especially important. George Wallace was my governor, um, a governor of a, a, a rampant racist um, who was to some extent kept in boundaries by a federal judge named Frank Johnson. And so Frank Johnson became a model for me as well. And, the, and it really symbolized the importance that law could bring to a situation of disarray, a situation that required order, a situation that uh, needed enforcement of civil rights. And so for me, even after I became a law professor, I, it was always important not just to study the law and write about it in some academic sense, but to also be able to speak truth to power and to be able to um, take a stand and stand up for things that I thought were important in the law. And one of the areas in which I have become an expert, I guess, is impeachment. And so, as you mentioned, I was a joint witness in the Clinton impeachment hearings. In the first trial of, uh, and first impeachment of President Trump, I was one of the four constitutional law professors called to testify in front of the House, and I did suggest in my testimony that I thought President Trump had committed more than one impeachable offense. Uh, in the second impeachment proceeding against uh, President Trump, I was hired by uh, Senator Leahy. When he became the presiding officer of the second impeachment trial, he hired me to be a special counsel and to help him navigate through that second trial. So... You know, I think that we that it uh, it may not be that hard a call as you as you indicated as to whether or not impeachable offenses uh, were were committed by President Trump. But of course, that's not the only question. The question then becomes: Is it wise to then proceed with impeachment, having decided that it's impeachable? Um, and then there are of course political considerations involved, not just legal ones. Um, and uh, I assume your role was primarily legal, but nevertheless, impeachment, they say, is a, a political process. So, um, you know, in retrospect, do you think that the first, that, that the first impeachment was uh, politically wise, it was a good thing that we did it, notwithstanding that we could all agree that there were impeachable offenses committed? And then the same question for the second one. And then I would also uh, add to that the, you know, perhaps a more fundamental question, which is, do you believe that the House had some sort of um, you know, moral or constitutional obligation to proceed with impeachment if they thought they were impeachable offenses, even though they believed there would be no chance of conviction? 
Well, I think the short answer to your question is yes, um, but I will give a, a little bit longer answer too. Uh, so I, I think that um, uh, I, one thing I do want to really, uh, I want to clarify is my role in all, in these various proceedings was strictly legal. Um, the way things are organized in Congress is um, members of Congress have counsel um, on committees whose job is really to focus on the law and legal questions that arise in, 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 on those committees or within the jurisdiction of those committees. And then they have separate people who help them with the politics. And I will say, after roughly 30 years working with members of Congress, I have never had a conversation about politics with any of them. Uh, my conversations have always been strictly about the law. Now, have as as politics shaped the framework for those discussions? Absolutely. Uh, are there going to be political ramifications for certain legal choices? Yes. But I'm not the one who makes those choices. I can apprise a senator or member of Congress, okay, here are your legal options. Um, and then the senator may, he or she, determine, okay, Politically, this is why I'm going to go this way or that way. I, I don't make that call for them. And so this is in the Trump situation, the Clinton situation, I was trying to strictly perform as a lawyer um, and as a legal counsel and therefore had certain kind of boundaries on what I did. Now, as far as whether the House made a, um, a, a, a politically wise choice or not, um, all I would say is that I think the House in both situations, but particularly the first situation, uh, did not think it had any choice. It was, it really had two bad choices um, in front of it. One was uh, to do nothing, in which case Trump would literally get away with it um, and there would be nothing in the record, in congressional or otherwise, to suggest uh, any constitutional uh, problem with whatever he did. Uh, that's one choice. The other choice was, yes, they could try and take a stand. Um, and in doing so, maybe it wouldn't work out, but at least they would stand up for what they thought was principle. Well, I think we know what happened. I think the House chose the latter option. They, they figured out, okay, nothing's perfect. We'll choose to stand up in a sense for our own prerogative. After all, the Constitution says the House is the sole power to impeach. And then we will do what we can, and we'll let the Senate decide for itself um, what's what's going to happen with that. And that'll be their problem if they choose not to convict. And we will have stood up, in our view, uh, on behalf of principle. And then if you look at the second situation, it's I think the reasoning or thinking was very similar. Um, did the House have a choice not to proceed with an impeachment against President Trump in that second situation? I would think it would have been very hard for the House not to do so, after all. The members of the House were the very ones who were attacked. They were under attack at the time people broke into Congress. So they didn't have to be told by newspapers or anybody else what was happening. Uh, the question there for the House was, could it stand up for its own institutional prerogative, defend itself against not just this, this attack, but against a president who directed an attack against them? That was their viewpoint. So that's what they stood up for. And in the Senate, I think um, – they had a little more complicated choice, but again, um, the decision-making in the Senate was about, okay, what's our institutional responsibility? Do we have power to even 
uh, look at this. Um, and if we do have power to even look at this, um, what, what are our options in terms of sanctions? Um, those are all reasonable questions facing the senators. But the fact you had 57 senators say convict, uh, I think was ultimately very telling. Were you ever asked um, about your legal opinion about a possible middle third option of censure? And also since we've been talking about Andrew Jackson, of course, our, some people in our audience will know that uh, Jackson was initially uh, censured in um, uh, a, a proceeding kind of spearheaded by Henry Clay, so two of Lincoln's mentors, and then the censure resolution was later um, rescinded. I think really even at Jackson's insistence ripped out of the the the, the journal of the senator something. So so this might be one way of pulling together some of the the things we've been talking about: Jackson, Clay, censure, and um, and your Trump experiences. So yes, I was asked about a censure in both situations. Um, I can't tell you too much about um, those conversations, obviously, but what I can tell you is in the uh, first, in the Clinton impeachment, where I think you were, you and I were, what was it, eighteen, nineteen of us testifying in front of the House mm-hmm. about the scope of impeachable offenses. Not long after we testified, I was contacted by a, a Massachusetts representative. William Delhunt, mm-hmm. um, to he, he kind of assigned me to be a reporter for a team of three people whose task was to draft a central resolution for the committee to consider. So I t- undertook that role along with Larry Tribe, who was then and still is at Harvard, and William Van Alstyne, who was, was at that time at Duke and has since um, unfortunately died. Um, and so it was. So the three of us came up with a draft um, that the committee considered and obviously did not uh, approve. Um, fast forward to this more recent situation, censure came up um, in this situation. The the second impeachment trial, actually, I should say both impeachments of President Trump. But I I didn't get the sense that anybody was seriously thinking about it um, on the House Judiciary Committee. Um, or in the House leadership. Um, I don't think there was anybody seriously thinking about it in either of the Trump impeachments um, on the House side. And on the Senate side, I think there were people, for example, thinking about it on the Senate side, uh, Tim Kaine, for example, from Virginia. Um, But uh, he soon discovered there was nobody else except for, I think, Susan Collins, who was going to join him on that. I think, uh, and so it just... So censure just never really got much traction, and therefore, whatever conversations we had about it were relatively short. You know, one of the issues in the in the second impeachment trial was, um, you know, this question of ex officer impeachment. And I think if you had um, taken a poll of uh, law professors and even senators, perhaps uh, in a in an atmosphere. Uh, you know, where there, where there was no pending impeachment. You know, what do you think about this in general? You know, most people would have said that ex-officer, uh, yes, you can impeach ex-officer, you can hold the trial, and certainly you could hold the trial if you had impeached the officer while they were still in, still in office. Um, but here, in the, in the moment when there was political advantage to taking a position, you had senator after senator on the Republican side saying, oh, well, I'm voting uh, 
to acquit because you know, I don't think that we should be uh, you know, trying an ex-officer. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that if there's any legal argument, no matter how flimsy, you know, in this political, uh, political divide, um, don't you think that future impeachments will find other similar arguments grabbed onto as a thread, as an excuse to vote to acquit, given this example? Yes, um, and that is, I think, the nature of precedent. I mean, I think that's just, you know, a precedent's real significance depends on how it's later um, construed, you know, to what extent later generations invest in one reading or another. Um, so I think that'll happen with all these impeachments. We've seen that happen with Bill Clinton's impeachments. That'll happen with both of the Trump impeachments. Um, I mean, one thing um, uh, that happens to be the case with me is I did happen to write about impeachment before the Clinton impeachment. Uh, uh, many people um, have ended up writing about these impeachments as they've happened, but I, I was able to develop a little bit of credibility by thinking about this stuff before it was a real issue with Bill Clinton, before it was even on the radar screen. Um, and one of the things I did say in my book on federal uh, impeachment that, um, was I thought that post-presidential impeachment was possible and permissible. Um, so I remain consistent with that. I, 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 I stuck by that position, unsurprisingly, with, with Trump um, in this last go-around. Um, but, uh, and Keel knows this, and there's another really terrific uh, constitutional scholar, Brian Colt, um, who has... Uh, in a sense, foreseen these difficulties, for example, post-presidential impeachment, and written about them before they really became live issues. And one reason why I think Brian's work is so helpful is he did, he was not writing it at a time when he had an axe to grind. He's just writing about it as a as a scholar, trying to figure out, okay, what's the right answer? That's that's the best situation I think uh, in which one can write about something. Now later. Uh, we can all look back at the Trump situation and see to what extent that informs our judgment about the Constitution one way or another. But to come full circle, Andy, in response to your question, I, I think that the uh, I, I think the vote on jurisdiction uh, in the Senate, the Senate took a vote on whether or not it had the jurisdiction to even consider whether Trump should be convicted. A majority said yes. But that vote in my judgment, was not binding on any uh, any senators. So there could be senators who disagree with that decision and figured out, okay, I'll still go a different way. That's Chuck Grassley, for example, or uh, some other senators who said, no, I I still stand by by my view that you know the constitutional law is X or Y. That's how things work in the Senate. And then as we get for, uh, more distant from that uh, decision in the Senate to hold a trial for President Trump, it's going to become something later Senates will have to define. That's how we, so in Trump's second trial, we look back at the first impeachment, William Blunt. We look back at Belknap's impeachment trial. We look back at a series of other impeachment trials, and we tried to figure out, okay, to what extent are those relevant here? And that's the question Congress has always got to decide when it's trying to figure out what's the most relevant precedent or not for what we're trying to do. 
So, Mike, three quick responses on that one. I'm so glad you mentioned Brian Kalt. He's my student and friend, um, a mentee. Um, I think he would say I was a mentor. We, uh, we co-authored things together even when he was a student. He's a real sweetie, and uh, maybe we'll get him on the podcast as, a, as an interviewee. You can encourage him, telling uh, reminding okay. him that, that we don't bite. Um, okay. And uh, so, um, and he wrote about some of that stuff. Um, um, I'm not sure I t- ever told you this, Mike, because I encouraged him, uh, and he wanted to write about things before they were controversial for just the reason you identified behind a veil of ignorance. What's the right answer if we're not sure if right. it's going to help our friend or hurt our friend? And I encouraged him and all that to to read your stuff first. So comes full circle on that. Um, second, one of the points that you've always made, what I thought was very interesting. Um, about burden of proof. Suppose actually you think that the burden of proof um, is beyond reasonable doubt or something like that. Well, that's just fine, and the Senate could even vote that way, but how do you force each and every senator, especially the ones who don't agree, to operationalize that? You know, suppose they think that it's only preponderance of the evidence. You know, how are you going to force them one by one to internalize proof beyond reasonable doubt? Now, in an ordinary jury trial, the judge sternly admonishes the jurors, and there are only 12 of them, and they're legal amateurs, and, and if someone in the jury room tries to make a contrary argument uh, that person's going to get shot down but but senators uh, can each one on can stand on her his own hind legs and say well i know that you all the majority voted for the proposition that was proof beyond a reasonable doubt but i still think it's merely a preponderance and that's going to be good enough for me or vice versa um um there's one other technical issue i remember reading about in your earliest work and i think you may have revised the position in a, in, a, in a later edition. You think, and I'm with you, that it's maybe um, not the best practice to think that uh, a sentence of disqualification above and beyond a conviction of guilt, you think that it's unfortunate that that may require a simple majority rather than an additional two-thirds vote. And I remember there was some end note in, 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 in the first edition of, of, of your work on this, and maybe you modified it later on. I quote, I think, the first edition of your work in, in my 2005 book, uh, America's Constitution, a biography, saying thoughtful commentators have really raised uh, good questions about whether um, uh, uh, the vote on sentencing for disqualification above and beyond removal, should require merely a majority um, or rather um, two-thirds? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for mentioning those things. And uh, I, I don't I, I don't think I've changed positions. Okay, okay. Well, maybe <laughs> um, it was just um, you had more evidence one way or the other on this uh, or something. But, but I, I have, in, in fact, I, uh, I can talk about this. In, in the second Trump impeachment trial, I can just say, I had conversations with people in which I had to acknowledge what my position was in um, helping to educate them. And I think that's a lot of what a legal counsel does in helping to educate people about what, um, what are the choices that they have? What's the history they might need to know? What's the text structure precedent, all these different things they might need to know. And so we had a conversation more than once about disqualification. What's the requisite vote? And I, as Akil points out, I've always taken the, the position um, against the Senate practice, um, but I've taken the position that 
I think the disqualification requires the same vote that uh, removal would require, and that's at least two-thirds uh, of the senators present. And, and, I, uh, and I agree with you, uh, Mike. I think, I, you know, I, I cite you and I say, when I said, you know, in a kind of fence-sitting way, thoughtful commentators have argued that this is a mistake. <laughs> what I really was saying is, I think Mike is right about this, <laughs> even though the precedent seems to suggest mere majority suffices, that doesn't seem quite right to me. And the text is ambiguous. It's not so clear. Right. Well, in That's terms right. of our, our, our audience's understanding of why it might be one way or the other, um, when we had discussed this last time, I, I had mentioned, as the non-lawyer in the group... Um, he only says he's a non-lawyer. He knows more about law than most <laughs> lawyers that I've met. Well, I, I, I always hold on to my wallet when somebody says that. Right? <laughs> well, I, I was saying that, you know, the notion that it's it's one body, you know, that's the Senate voting alone without the House in this case. Um, when you have other circumstances like that, things like treaties and so forth, um, you know, that uh, it tends to require more than a majority. Um, and in this case... Expelling you know, a member. Right. So there are other, other categories like that. When there isn't bicameralism, sometimes uh, a heightened, uh, a, a, a supermajority vote is a, is a nice offset. So that was my thinking as a, as a layman. But I'm interested in, in hearing not just that you think it's two-thirds, but why you think it's two-thirds. Well, I think it's, uh, as Akil says, it's not uh, clear just if you read the text um, that you'd come out one way or another. Um, however, uh, I think uh, symmetry, structure, um, fairness, uh, among other things, point in, in the direction um, I believe that would require uh, at least two-thirds of the vote of the Senate to, um, to disqualify. Um, I, I just want to add one more thing that's not directly on point, but just cuts across a number of things we talked about, which I hope would be helpful to your listeners. And that is, um, in, in everything I, I've tried to do, particularly when I work as a legal counsel within the process, I've also had the great honor of being special counsel to the Senate Judicial Committee for eight of the sitting, eight of the nine sitting justices uh, for their nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, one of the things that uh, I take really seriously is that uh, has to do with this role of being an educator, of trying to educate people in the system about the so-called law. And in, this is where it may be helpful if somebody doesn't just come to that topic later um, and cherry picks things, because um, I think you will miss a lot if you come to that situation later and just cherry pick. I'll, I'll take uh, one scholar, for example, whom we both know and respect, Cass Sunstein at Harvard, will say on presidential impeachments, I just look at those, those are different. Um, well, it's helpful for him I, I, that could be a principled stance, but a lot of the positions Professor Sunstein takes on impeachment are completely inconsistent with what happens in judicial impeachments. And we've got to come up with a better explanation as to why presidential impeachments might have to be treated differently as a matter of principle, not as a matter of convenience. Um, and it will be helpful, I think, sometimes for participants in the system to be able to understand the larger historical background framework, the full range of precedents. Notice, when we talk about Trump's situation, we were willing to look at Belknap's 
uh, earlier impeachment. Belknap's a cabinet secretary, but nobody said, oh, well, that's different. He's a cabinet secretary. No, it may have been relevant because it's part of that same process. It may help illuminate it, and then we got to figure out what's the same or what's different about it. And so I'm just coming, again, full circle to say that I think um, understanding the process more comprehensively may allow us to understand it in, as it applies and functions in a particular setting better than if we just focus on um, the, uh, the narrow range of officials who are its, whose tenders at stake. Well, I think that's, that's very important. Thank you for that. Um, so two things before we wrap up. Um, one, at, right at the beginning of our discussion about impeachment, uh, I think I heard you say that something to the effect that while you know, the impeachment of, of various officials, judges, or whatever, you know, may be able to be accomplished, that presidential impeachment as it stands now is essentially a dead letter. Um, is that the case? Well, I don't, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to put it that way, and I, I didn't mean to leave that impression. Um, I think there's not a taste for, to rev up that machinery again. That does, it could well be that people do develop that taste or do develop the motivation, but uh, I, I think um, functioning within the structure of the Constitution and within the checks and balances that exist I think members of Congress would probably have a hard time revving up that machinery again just for the sake of political retribution. I think more would have to be happening to get that going. So you think um, that conviction can take place under certain circumstances? Oh, okay. Well, I was talking about the process more generally. In terms of conviction, okay, I, I may have misunderstood your question. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Andy. No, um, my fault. Uh, I, I think that threshold will, is going to continue to be difficult to meet uh, that is to say, to get at least two-thirds of the senators present to convict a sitting president, that's going to be difficult to meet as long as political parties have the stranglehold over members of Congress that they have. Um, and um, we'd have to have a diminution of party loyalty um, uh, that would have to take place uh, in order for people to begin to focus more um, uh, accurately and precisely on the merits of a particular uh, situation as opposed to the partisan fallout. You'd have to say that, it, that uh, what you're describing is, is a phenomenon that uh, Akhil and I have talked about, although not on the podcast yet, you know, about this notion of party over institution, yes. institutional prerogatives of, you know, because if, they, if institutional prerogatives aren't going to assert themselves when the capital is physically invaded, um, then it's hard to imagine when they would assert themselves. So the, Levinson pilled, the Levinson pilled in separation of, of parties and uh, versus separation of powers. And do you, I think you had one other point, and then I was going to make, make one concluding observation. Please. So let me, yes. So now that the impeachment uh, process, is, at least in Congress, is over, as you said, we're still feeling the effects, but we're still left with you know, state prosecutors and so forth that are looking at uh, various aspects of President Trump's administration. Um, do you think that uh, there's fallout from the fact that the impeachment took place that will cast a shadow either, uh, you know, in one way or the other on these other prosecutions? It's possible, although um, I would think it's unlikely, and that's because these processes have all been, um, all functioned relatively independent uh, from each other. Um, so uh, prosecutors 
might sometimes be referring something to Congress, but they understand that whatever happens in Congress with, res with respect to impeachment is operates under different procedures, rules of evidence, burdens of proof, uh, and structures than would be the case if the prosecutors proceeded to get a grand jury indictment and went to court uh, to try to convict somebody of a certain criminal uh, wrongdoing. So I, I think, and that has long been the case, that the, we have these different uh, ways to hold presidents accountable for their misconduct, and they can function independently from each other. They, they function largely independently from each other, in, in my opinion. So Thank you. Uh, so, so, Mike, um, just uh, as we wrap things up, I want to tell our audience just a little bit more about um, uh, you and, and why we invited you. Andy had, had gave you a great um, intro, um, so this is your outro. Um, so I, I, you're my kind of guy and uh, my kind of scholar, and both because you and I ideally think about trying to, if we can, think about interesting and important constitutional issues before... Uh, they, they have a political charge. We try to figure out what's right in principle, regardless of whose ox is going to be gored. And truthfully, not all of our colleagues in constitutional law world do that. But you try to do that, and I try to do that, and I think that's the way to be. Um, and you and I are both particularly interested, not just in constitutional law, but its interaction with uh, constitutional history and political science. And we're interested in constitutional decision-making outside the judiciary and not just um, uh, court-watching. So we've talked, for example, uh, today about the presidency more generally and Lincoln's mentors and uh, forgotten presidents. We've talked about the impeachment process, which takes place generally outside of ordinary Article Three or state court adjudication. You mentioned very briefly... Um, that you've been involved uh, in, in very modestly in um, eight um, Senate uh, confirmation processes for Supreme Court uh, appointments. We haven't actually had a chance to talk about your, your, your book on the appointments process. We've talked about your impeachment book. We've talked about your Lincoln book and there, the other books too. So um, I want to just um, get your promise right now that when there's an appointment, uh, the next Supreme Court vacancy <laughs> that comes up, I know you're going to be a very busy bee in, in that and who knows when it will be. But I want you to promise to our audience that you'll make room for, for, for us. We'll do another interview, and we can talk about uh, appointments things in, in our next uh, conversation. We're waiting for the yes. I would be... Ha <laughs> yes, I would be greatly honored to do that. I, I will always say yes, Akil. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Professor Michael Gerhardt, the Burton Craig... Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina and proud Yale College graduate. Bula Bula. <laughs> well, we all have that among many other things in common. Thank you. <laughs>